0: Good morning and welcome. Glad you're here. I just want to say something right at the outset. I want no complaining about the weather today, okay? (laughs) Nobody complained. Last week we are huddled in here like Eskimos in an igloo, desperately trying to stay warm. Well, you're warm, okay? It's exactly what you wanted last week. The igloo's melted. We're in the full bore of the sun. It's good. This is Michigan. This is why we live here. It's because of summer and it's just starting. It's good. I also want to greet the friends that are off at uh, Huffmaster State Park. Thanks for staying with us today. Even though you're away, you're here. And we're glad for that. Well, we started off with that great song by The Beatles today. And I did that for a purpose. When I think about great musical teams, certainly John Lennon and Paul McCartney come come to mind. The songs that they wrote, their ability to put together music was truly amazing. Over the course of their writing career, this partnership crafted 180 published songs, which doesn't include the songs they didn't publish. Of that 180 songs, 20 of them skyrocketed to the top of Billboard 100 Hot Hot Songs. Stuff like Eleanor Rigby, Yesterday, and Come Together. It also gives you a picture of when I grew up, because that's the stuff I grew up with. And the delight is that some of that stuff is still being sung and played today because it's just good music coming out of a great partnership. But there are other kind of partnerships as well, other partnerships to keep in mind. I think about partnerships in business. So you've got Steve Wozniak and Stephen Jobs. They forged this amazing company called Apple. What a great partnership that, that that resulted in. you got, I don't know, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield. You familiar with those guys? Ben and Jerry's ice cream. That's a good partnership. That's one that we can all use today. There's some great business partnerships, but one really close to home that we ought to recognize as well is Rich DeVos and J. Van Andel. 1959, these two buddies from high school days came together in a basement and started this little company that today has grown into a multinational business a partnership that has changed the lives of so many people, including a lot of us right here in West Michigan. So you got partnerships in music. you got partnerships in business. You've got partnerships in food. Let's get serious now. This is, this is important. When you start talking about food, my attention is fully focused. <laughs> so think about partnerships like, I don't know, peanut butter and jelly. What a great partnership. Where would we be without peanut butter and jelly or, or mac and cheese, Right? And then everyone's family favorite, liver and onions. Oh, yeah. All right. I got a couple of stalwarts here. I did a poll. How how many of you are fans of liver and onions? Not bad. Not bad. The rest of you just haven't grown up yet and found your adult taste. It's good stuff. Good stuff. There's one more partnership that I have to call attention to. This one started 47 years ago when two young kids on the north side of Holland got married, Bob and Betty Jo. We haven't changed a bit. It's a partnership that has stood the test of time, multiple moves, lots of transitions, some challenges along the way. But 47 years later, we're still working at it, and it's still good. And my dear, I want to thank you. Thank you. We're in a series called Find and Follow. Find and Follow, that's, that's what Keystone is about, right? It's our, it's our statement of purpose. We want to help people find and follow Jesus. And as we look at our passage today, this, this teaching from Scripture, we're going to find out that finding and following Jesus puts us into this amazing partnership with Him. That's why we talk about partnerships, because we have access to the biggest and best partnership ever. We want people to find a new relationship with Jesus that that takes them into a pathway of ever-deepened relationship. So wherever you are in your journey to find and follow Jesus, we're glad you're here today. And I hope that something I say to you will help you take your next step as you find and follow Jesus. When Jesus lived on this earth, He called together 12 guys, 12 men, that were eventually called his disciples. And he invited them to walk with him and to live with him, to be with him almost nonstop for the next three years. One of those guys was a man named John. After Jesus died and was raised and then ascended into heaven, John decided he needed to write an account of the life and ministry of Jesus. He had been with him. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. He would oftentimes sit next to Jesus at a meal and and lean onto Jesus. They were that tight. So his perspective is a real perspective. It's a helpful perspective. And what he talks about is stuff that he saw happening and that he heard Jesus say. In his record of the life and ministry of Jesus, he tells a story about Jesus and his disciples a crowd, and a young boy. And that's the story we want to look at. That's where we begin to find out about this amazing partnership that took place one day on the hills on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. We're in John chapter 6, and this is what he writes. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. Now, just a quick reference there. It was renamed by the Romans to be the Sea of Tiberias because they wanted to honor their emperor. Not because it really was a different sea. It's the same one. It's just a different name. Sometimes that happens. And Jesus went up onto the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. For nearly a year, Jesus has spent almost all of his time on the western side of the Sea of Galilee and farther south into the area of Judea. Here's a map to give you an idea of where we are with all of that. On the bottom part, you see Judea, (coughs) and in Judea is the city of Jerusalem, the major city of the time. Jesus spent a lot of time in Jerusalem and in Judea. In the middle, you have Samaria. This is where no Jew would go. They They would go all the way around Samaria because they were considered unclean. Jesus actually goes into Samaria, and when he's there, he does the unthinkable. He talks to a woman. That was against the rules. But that woman eventually becomes a follower of Jesus because Jesus took the time to talk with her. Then up in the north you have Galilee. That's Jesus' home territory. His his family would have come from that region. He spent a lot of time up there. Much of his first year of ministry is spent in, in that region. And that's where we are contrasting now where Jesus goes. Now he and his disciples go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And you can see on the map, there's that arrow up in the top. That's the Sea of Galilee. They've been on the west side. Now they're going to go around the top, and they're going to go to the east side. It's an area that we today would call the Golan Heights. Maybe you've heard of that in the news. That's where they're going to be going. And this picture shows the contrast between the western shore and the eastern shore. On the western shore, it's lush and green. It's a great place to live. The eastern side, where they're headed off to, It's pretty barren and desolate. It's hilly. It's a great place if you want to graze your sheep or your goats. But it's probably not a place where very many people are going to find it comfortable to live. Jesus and his disciples cross over the Sea of Galilee. They go to the hills. And I think that Jesus wants some time with his disciples. I think he wants a little time to talk to them, to maybe teach them a little, perhaps to find out from them, what have you been hearing and what are you learning And how is it helping you to understand who I am? But it was not to be. John continues. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Before this event takes place, before John writes about it, he writes about two other things that happened. Two miraculous healings that Jesus performed as a part of his ministry. In the one, this nobleman comes to him He's probably someone who has a role in the court of King Herod Antipas. He's not a follower of Jesus, but he knows this. Jesus has done some miracles, and he has a need. So he comes to Jesus, and he says, my son is sick. In fact, my son is going to die. And they've done everything they can for him, and he's not getting better. Would you please come with me? to my house, and heal my son. Jesus doesn't go with him. But he does say this. He says, your son will live. Now, most would assume that for Jesus to heal someone from an illness, they had to be present. He had to be there. Maybe he had to touch them in some way. But Jesus simply says, your son will live. And he sends the man back to his house And when he gets home, he finds out that exactly the moment Jesus was saying your son will live is the moment his son recovered from his illness. And the people around are going, whoa, that's amazing. He could heal someone without even being there. There's also the time that John talks about when Jesus is down in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there was this place called the Pool of Bethesda. And and Jesus goes there one day and he sees this fellow uh, who is unable to walk. He's an invalid. And he said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, you know, Lord, when, when the waters are troubled, when the waters are stirred up, I try to be the first one in because the tradition is that there would be healing for that first person into the water that day. But he said, I'm never the first one in. And for 38 years, I've been unable to walk, and I just lay here, begging a few coins and waiting for the waters to trouble so that I can get into the water and maybe be healed. And Jesus looked at him and said, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And this guy who had not walked for 38 years feels strength surge into his legs, And he gets up, and he rolls up his mat, tucks it under his arm, and he walks home. And the people who saw him there year after year after year, unable to walk, are amazed. What has this done? It has created a whole bunch of fans for Jesus. They are so caught up with all the miracles that he can do. They're so fascinated by what he's able to do that that they just want to be around. They want to be there so that the next time somebody is given sight, they can say, I was there. I saw it happen. The next time somebody is given the ability to walk after having been unable to walk, they want to say, I saw it. I saw it. I was there. They don't want to miss anything. They are fans of Jesus. And so when they find out that Jesus is going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they decide to hike around the North Shore And they're going to go there because they don't want to miss anything that he does. They're not followers. They don't want to hear his message. They're not interested in what he has to say. But they are totally captivated by what he can do. And John continues. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these to eat? And we listen to that and we think, that's really not a very very nice question to ask poor Philip. I mean, hey, Philip, look at all these people coming. Did you bring the refreshments? If not, what are you going to do about it, Philip? Now, he may have asked Philip because Philip came from a nearby town, Bethsaida. And he may have thought, well, maybe Philip knows the baker in town. He can go get some bread. But, But that's not really why Jesus was asking him. Philip feels a little caught right now. It'd be like, Your daughter coming home from soccer practice saying, Hey, Mom, I'm home. Oh, by the way, I brought the whole team with me. What do you have for us to eat? And you go, yeah. And Philip's going, ah, what am I supposed to do? And then John lets us in on a little secret. He asked this only to test him. We already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus wasn't caught by surprise when this crowd came up. And he wasn't standing there going, oh my goodness, what are we going to do with all these people? How are we ever going to feed them? I don't know what to do. He knew exactly what they needed, and he knew exactly what he was going to do. So why did he ask Philip that question? Because I think he wanted Philip to think about all that he had heard and all that he had seen, and said, Philip, are you going to be a fan? Or are you going to be a follower? Are you caught up with what I do? Or do you begin to understand a little bit of who I am? And you're going to be a follower now, not just a fan. But poor Philip is panicked, and his calculator mind is beginning to work, and he's starting to look at the crowd and see them coming along the shore, and he's going, Let's see if we got one, two, three, four. How many? Hundreds of people. And I've got how much are we going to have to have to give everyone at least a bite? See if I got a loaf, I could cut it into this many pieces, and we could feed it to this many people. And he's just calculating all he can. For everyone to have just at least a bite of food. And then having calculated, he says to Jesus, eight months of wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. The average wage in Jesus' day was one denarius for a day's work. And most of that denarius would be spent on food, staying alive. As Philip does his calculations, he begins to realize that even if I had eight months of wages, I couldn't buy enough food for everyone to have just a bite, not a meal, not a sandwich, just a bite. And he's discouraged. Much to his relief, however, a friend steps up with a solution. And John tells us another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Uh, Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. Yeah, But how far will they go among so many? So while Philip is calculating and trying to figure out what's it going to take to feed this crowd, Andrew is doing a little crowd surfing. He's walking around trying to find people with picnic baskets to find out is there any food that we could use to share. And he finds one. Finds a boy, probably 12 years old. And he has with him his lunch, five small barley loaves. I don't want you thinking loaves like you get at Forest Hill Foods. We're talking dinner rolls, five little dinner rolls. And he's got two fish, and we're not talking Chinook salmon either. We're talking things more like somewhere between a sardine and a perch. Dried, maybe pickled. And he brings this little kid forward. And he said, you know, I found this out there. But really, Jesus, what good is it? It's not enough. You've got a boy who's bringing barley loaves, which tell us, because of what we know historically, that that this kid was from a poor family. Barley was the food of the poor. If you had more money, you would eat wheat, but the poor people ate barley. And he's got these tiny little fish. And, and Andrew's a realist and says, we've got, we got thousands of people here. This isn't going to go very far. And I can only imagine what it was like for that little boy to stand in front of Jesus that day. And, and to stand there with his lunch, which seems so inadequate for the moment. And he is so insignificant a 12-year-old boy. And Jesus looked at him, and I can almost imagine Jesus saying, Son, do you trust me? Do you trust me that what you have and what I bring can be pretty amazing? Would you trust me with your lunch? And the little kid is going, if I did, I don't have anything. But he surrenders his lunch. And when he does, he enters into a partnership with Jesus. That becomes truly amazing. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. So how many people are there? Well, there's 5,000 men. But there would also have been women and children. And so we can estimate that there would have been at least 10,000 people and maybe upwards of 15 to even 20,000 people. And they're all sitting down on the hillside. And Jesus stands there with five little dinner rolls and two little fish. And he starts to break the dinner rolls and says, thank you, Father, for this food. And they pass it out, and they pass it out, and they pass it out, and they pass it out. And everybody gets as much as they want. Not just a bite like Philip was talking about. They get as much as they want. And the same happens with the fish. It just keeps multiplying. And everyone eats their fill. They're not going away saying, well, that was a tasty little morsel. They're going away saying, whoa, I am loaded. I could not eat another bite. That was really good. Jesus takes this little offering of an insignificant little boy and multiplies it to feed thousands of people because they were in partnership together. John continues, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, to be sure, Jesus didn't need this boy's lunch to feed the crowd. If he had wanted to, he could have had everyone sit down and then suddenly appear in front of each individual person, a lamb shish kebab with a bowl of rice and Hudsonville ice cream for dessert. He could have done that, but he chose not to. In fact, he chose to invite a young boy into partnership with him so that he could take his resources and multiply them for his own glory. Which brings us to our big idea for today. A follower of Jesus lives in dynamic partnership with him. You and I, as a follower of Jesus, are in dynamic partnership with him. Jesus isn't looking for more fans. Jesus is looking for more followers. The people who came to Jesus that day mostly were fans, and Jesus tried to penetrate a bit and and say to a guy like Philip, are, are you my follower? Because when you become my follower, everything is different. As you begin to grow in walking with me and knowing who I am and trusting me and and understanding me, you also enter into partnership with me. And when you enter into a partnership with me, everything is different from that point on. Like the boy in our story, we bring our resources to him, which for the most part are inadequate and insufficient for the circumstances that you and I face. But we bring them to him, and we walk into partnership with him, and that little bit of resource, and he takes it, and expands it, and multiplies it, and uses it in ways that are amazing to us. So what do you do when you face a challenging situation? Maybe you're like Philip. Philip ran the numbers. He did the calculations. He sat there and tried to figure out what's it going to take to get this done and then realized it's no use. I can't do it. When I run the numbers, they don't add up. Or maybe you're like Andrew. Well, I I got something here, but I, I think it's inadequate. I don't think it's going to be enough. I don't think it's going to get us where we need to go. And so you hang your head and you say, yeah, I've got something, but it's not good enough. It's not big enough. It's not strong enough. It's not sufficient and you're kind of discouraged. What do you do when you face a challenging situation and your calculations come up short and your resources are inadequate? I think what we need to understand is when we face a challenging situation, you need to take what you have and lean on your partner. You lean on Jesus. You take what you have to him and say, this is what I have in this moment. What can we do together in this? What can we do together to resolve this? So, someone comes to you and says, would you be willing to lead a big idea group? Or teach a class? Or mentor a high schooler? And you say, well, not me. I haven't been to seminary. I, I haven't taken a hundred Bible courses. I, I'm just trying to figure out what it means to find and follow Jesus. But if you're willing to take what you know, even though it may be inadequate, and give it to Jesus and walk forward with Him into that role to be a big idea group leader or a mentor to a teenager or to teach a class. It's amazing what Jesus can do with your willingness and your limited resources to help you become effective in that work. Maybe you need a job and you pray and you ask Jesus for a job, but but first you've got to find the jobs. you got to fill out the applications. you got to go through the interviews. And so you do all of that believing that Jesus is walking with you and that he will at the right time open the right job for you. And so you do your part and you trust him for the outcome, asking him to guide you in that process. Is your marriage in trouble? Is it on rocks? So you're struggling? Well, then get counsel. Seek counsel. Work to change yourself. But then also trust Jesus to help change your relationship. To draw you closer together through him. And so you do your part and he does his part. And many marriages have been saved and made better because of it. Maybe you've got a child that's kind of run off the rails. What do you do? Well, obviously you encourage him. And you challenge her. And you provide discipline as appropriate. But you also pray and ask God to soften that child's heart so that he or she will have a heart for Jesus and a heart to be obedient and to walk faithfully. And so you bring what you can bring. And Jesus brings who he is. And you enter into a partnership on behalf of that child. Facing a health crisis? By all means, seek medical help and understanding and interaction. But also remember that your partner will never leave you or forsake you, that he walks through this journey with you, that he's there to give you hope and help and strength and comfort, and that he holds you in his hands as you trust him while doing what you need to do. Is your life as a follower of Jesus stagnant, stuck? Well, keep coming on Sundays. Maybe join a big idea group. Maybe you even seek some counsel along the way. But also ask Jesus to give you a new heart, a new life, a new energy for him. A new desire to know him and to walk with him. And you bring what you have and what you can do. And he brings who he is into a partnership that is life changing. The follower of Jesus lives in dynamic partnership with him. And like I could have imagined Jesus saying to the little boy, he says to you and me, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Will you give me what you have? I know you think it's not enough, it's inadequate, it's shallow. I know you think you're not good enough or or strong enough, but will you give me who you are and give me what you have? Will you trust me with it? And let me use what you bring with who I am so that together we can accomplish really good, amazing things. That's the invitation we have today. Whatever the circumstance, that as a follower of Jesus, you and I are involved in a dynamic partnership with Him. And He simply says, bring me what you have, bring me who you are, and partners together, we will do what only we can do together. Would you stand please as we close in prayer? Father, thank you for this encouraging story from John's writings for us. And thank you that Jesus is our partner, that we are in dynamic relationship, partnership with him, and that with our meager resources and with who we are partnered with him, we can do amazing things through him. So, Father, whatever situation we might be facing today, May we face it in partnership with Jesus. May we know his strength, his power, his love, his goodness. And may we see you do amazing things. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time together. We walk now as partners with Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you.